I have three texts that I want to tie together this morning, and if you look at them with me, and then we will try to bring things into focus, and all three of them use the same word, and that's the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and the first text is verse 9 of chapter 9. And it talks about the Old Testament ministry of the priest. It says, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And the NIV translates that. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And keep that phrase in mind, not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And then verse 14 of chapter 9, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then the other verses, chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Or, as the NIV says, make perfect those who drew near to worship. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. And you can see how the three texts go together, and the idea is conscience, and we're to talk about conscience and the atonement. And stated briefly, you can say that the conscience of the old covenant believer could not be cleansed simply because there was no real atonement unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ until he made a true atonement on the cross. That's the first real atonement and the only atonement that will ever be necessary. Let's begin with Hebrews chapter 6, or Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, and this is a very key text of Scripture. And the writer makes three comparisons in this text, and the book of Hebrews is built around these three comparisons. And uh, he is summarizing here the whole idea that he develops about the priesthood of Christ in chapters 4 through 10. He begins in verse 1 by saying, uh, Now the things which we have spoken of, this is the sum. So he's really giving you a summary of the first seven chapters. And in verse 6 he says, Now he, that is Christ, hath obtained a more excellent ministry than that of Aaron, by how much more also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now he argues here on the basis of three comparisons and says that three things are better than three other things. Now when you find something is better It has no meaning to you unless you know something about the first thing. 
If I were to say to you, oranges are sweeter than lemons, that would never mean anything to you if you had not first tasted a lemon. But if you had a lemon and then somebody stuck an orange in your mouth, you would know this was better as far as being sweeter. And one of the problems with people interpreting, especially the book of Hebrews, but even the whole New Testament scripture, is they really do not understand the function and the purpose of what went on in the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what this writer is doing at this point. Now, the three things which he talks about is that Christ has a better ministry than Aaron. Well, why is Christ's ministry better than Aaron's? And that's the second point, because it's based on a better covenant. Well, why is this covenant that Christ's ministry is based on better than the covenant that Aaron's ministry was based on? And the answer is because it's based on better promises. So a better ministry, because it's based on a better covenant, and the covenant is better because it's based on better promises. And the old covenant promise was do and live, obey and earn, and then you will be blessed. And the new covenant says it is finished, believe. It is done once and for all. Look to he who did the work. Now you can see how these three things are related to each other and how they grow out of each other and how they give you a summary of really what the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about. It seems also obvious, at least to me, is that everything hinges on the nature of the covenant and the terms of the covenant. And to understand these two covenants and their nature and their terms is to really understand the book of Hebrews. The whole ministry of Aaron failed to bring sinners into the presence of God. He could not take anybody into the most holy place with him on the Day of Atonement, and only he himself could go in one day out of the year. And this is why it totally failed. In verse 7 of Hebrews 8, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been bought, sought for another. And down in verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. The first covenant had to be replaced. And of course, it was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures that it would be replaced. So this shouldn't come as a shock to anybody. And the first covenant had to be replaced simply because it could not do the job. It could not bring sinners into the presence of God. It could not bring reconciliation. It could not provide atonement, could not provide true appreciation. Now, was it Aaron's fault? Was it because Aaron was not faithful enough in performing his duties before God? No, it wasn't that at all. We have every reason to believe that Aaron was a godly man. And even though he performed all of his functions exactly like God told him to, to do them, he still could not bring sinners into the presence of God. Was it because nobody was willing to believe? Was it because there was no personal faith? Was there nobody around who had in their hearts a love of God? No, there were people who loved God. There were people who brought the sacrifices in faith. 
But despite their faith and despite their doing in faith exactly what God told them to do, they still could not go behind the veil into the presence of God where God dwelt. Was it because the ceremonies were not followed correctly or uh, in strict perseverance? No. A true believer could have done exactly what God told him to do in all of the sacrifices, and Aaron could have done what he did with a warm heart, but it would still have failed to bring sinners into the presence of God. And that's what we have to see. Why did it fail? Why did the whole system of Judaism fail? Why was it so ineffectual? And the old covenant and Judaism, national Israel, all of these things that begin at Mount Sinai had a terminating point in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did it fail? Well, it failed because the terms of the covenant could not be met. Therefore, the covenant blessings that were promised could never be experienced. Everything hinged upon obeying the covenant and earning the blessings that the covenant promised. And what were those specific categorical blessings? Go back to the book of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And beginning to read at verse 4. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if... You will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then, on the ground of your obedience to my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you are to speak unto the children of Israel. Now, one of the real difficulties in theology, in both older dispensationalism and also covenant theology, is it treats typology in the Old Testament as reality. And they view the nation of Israel in the wilderness as believers. They were not believers. They were as lost as the devil, most of them. And the dispensationalist says, they had put the blood on the door, therefore they were saved, but they didn't have enough faith to enter into the land of Canaan, and so they were, quote, carnal Christians who had not yet come to the second stage. And that's taught still in some places. Covenant theology hangs everything on verse 4 and says this is grace, and God is talking to a people that he's redeemed. And because these are his redeemed people, he is not putting them under any kind of a covenant of law, because how can you put the redeemed church under the law? And of course that would be right if Israel was the church, and if it was the redeemed church, then of course their reasoning would be right. But again, because they treat Israel's redemption as real redemption, then they fall into this error. Everything that God says about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, that it was a special nation, loved by God as no other nation, redeemed by God out of the land of Egypt, called, called, loved, chosen, 
All of those words as they pertain to Israel as a nation do not have the same connotation when you come over to the New Testament and speak of the church of Jesus Christ as those who have been called. Every single Israelite participated in the call out of Egypt. Every Israelite participated in the redemption. Whether an Israelite was lost or saved, he could say, I am the special object of God's love. I am redeemed by blood. I belong to Jehovah God. He had that privilege by virtue of his being part of this nation that was chosen and called and redeemed and kept because of God. Here in this place in Exodus chapter 19 is where this covenant takes place. This is where they enter into this special, unique, national relationship with God. If you obey my covenant, then, now that's conditional. Now notice what these specific blessings are that were promised to them on the grounds of keeping this covenant. First of all, you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. You will be the apple of my eye. In verse 6, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, these blessings, to be a special people, to be kings and priests, and to be a holy nation, were the blessings, the specific blessings, that this covenant promised conditioned upon their obedience to that covenant. If you do this, then this is what you will become. Israel never inherited these blessings. She never became a holy nation. She never became a kingdom of priests or kings and priests. Go over in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And you will notice that one on one, these are the things that we, as the people of God, have become. 1 Peter chapter 1, or 1 Peter chapter 2, pardon me, beginning to read at verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have obtained mercy, but now had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In the book of Exodus chapter 19, it says you shall be a peculiar treasure. And here it says you shall be a peculiar people. In Exodus it says you should be a peculiar treasure above all people. And Peter says you are a chosen nation. In verse 6 of Exodus, it says, you shall be kings and priests. And here it says, we shall be a royal priesthood or a kingly priesthood or kings and priests. And then in verse 6, you shall be a holy nation. And in second, or First Peter chapter 2, it says, you are a chosen or you are a holy nation. Now, all of these blessings that the nation of Israel never experienced, was because they never kept the terms of the covenant. And why do we experience them today? 
Why can you say that you have these blessings and that these things belong to you? Why is that? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 7, and I think you have the clear answer as to why we have these things, that we have the specific blessings which were covenanted but never experienced by the nation of Israel. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning, uh, or just verse 22. But so much, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or better covenant. God did not lower the standards. The glory of the new covenant is not back here. God says jump six feet and nobody can do it. So he lowers the bars to three feet. The glory of the new covenant is that we have a surety who has kept the covenant in our place. And we have these blessings because they have been earned for us by our covenant-keeping Lord and Savior. Now, you'll notice that Hebrews 7, verse 22, speaks of two things. It speaks of a better testament, and it speaks of a surety. We have a surety of a better testament because it's based on better promises, and we have the assurance that those promises will be fulfilled. See, there really wasn't anything wrong with the Old Covenant in and of itself. It's holy, just, and good. And there's nothing wrong with the demands that God made upon the people at Mount Sinai. Now, our covenant theologian friends want to argue that because the Israelites says all that the Lord has said we will do, that proves they were regenerated and they were expressing their love to God. <laughs> I don't think that's what they were expressing. I think that what they were expressing was their arrogant self-sufficiency. All the Lord has said we will do. I was preaching in Dallas, Texas, and they had a discussion, and one of the young men challenged me on this particular point, and I asked him if you today had a revelation of God to you, and he made these same terms and said, now these are going to be the terms of my relationship with you, what would you say? And, and he said, well, what would you say? <laughs> and I said, well, first of all, I would say, Lord, thou art holy, just, and good, and this is a good and holy, just covenant, and you have every single right to make it, and I have every obligation to obey it, but you know and I know that I'm a dead man if there's no other way. And one thing I would not say is, Lord, don't worry about it, I'll do it. Because I knew and know I can't. And so I don't think this was an expression of a redeemed people coming under a law as a rule of life. I think it was arrogant unbelief and self-righteousness that never understood any of the things that God said to him. So there wasn't anything wrong with the covenant. In fact, 2 Corinthians tells us that this covenant was glorious. It had a glory of all of its own. Now, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me for a moment. We'll come back to Hebrews in a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is a very misunderstood chapter. Beginning at verse 6. Who hath made us able ministers of the new covenant. Or New Testament. 
We minister on a different ground. We, we proclaim a message and a covenant that Moses did not proclaim. Now, the gospel is clear as a crystal in types and shadows and all of these things in the Old Testament. We'll get to that in a moment. But the essence of the grace of God in the gospel, as we understand it, is a New Testament revelation. There are types and shadows. But we minister a different new covenant. And this covenant is not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And you will constantly hear people take this verse and they say, well, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Paul is not talking about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law in this passage of Scripture. There is no such thing as the letter of the law. The law is the law. And the law is legal. And it's always legal. And it's always absolute. And the spirit is the spirit. And grace is grace. So he's not talking about the letter of the law. The law is the letter. He's talking about two different ministries, a ministry of the law and a ministry of the Spirit. Not talking about a legal ministry of the law versus a spiritual ministry of the law. There is no such thing any more than there is a legal ministry of the Spirit. <laughs> there is no such thing. So he's comparing here... These two covenants, these two administrations of God. And if you look at verse 7, he says in verse 7, If the ministration of death... Now he's talking about the old covenant that ministered death by convicting people of sin and killing their self-righteousness. If this ministry of death, written and graven in stones... Now, now, what can he possibly be talking about when he says written and graven in stone? He's not talking about a legal interpretation of the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the covenant itself. That is the letter. And he says, now, if the ministration of death, which was written and engraved in stones, was glorious, and it was glorious, verse 8 how, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be more glorious? Amen. You remember in Galatians when, when he talks about the parable, not the parable, but the, the allegory of Sarah and Hagar. And he says these two women represent the two covenants. The one at Sinai and the other the gracious covenant that Christ brought. But you see, Abraham was the father of both Ishmael and Isaac. He was the husband of both Sarah and Hagar. Just as God is the author of both the Old and the New Covenant, so Abraham is the father of both of these sons. I think it was Chuck Swindoll who says the question here in Galatians is not who is your father because Abraham is the father of all. The question is who's your mother? <laughs> who has begotten you? And what's begotten and changed your heart and produced the worship? Have you been begotten by law or have you been begotten by grace? Who's mothered you? Who's brought you into the kingdom and opened your mind and your heart and your eyes? Now, the glory of this new covenant is it doesn't minister death. It ministers life. 
The letter kills. That's why it's called a ministration of death. And Paul specifically identifies this letter, as we just noticed, with the tablets of stone. Now, what we must understand, and log it into your little computer brain, or big computer brain. I don't know how many megs you have. <laughs> the purpose, the intention of the law was to minister death. That's why God gave it. He did not give it to a group of saved people because Timothy tells us the law wasn't given for righteous people but for unrighteous people. And keep in your mind the purpose, the function of that old covenant was to minister death by bringing conviction of sin. That's amazing how few people realize that the Ten Commandments in and of themselves are the old covenant. That comes as a revelation to people. And it shouldn't because it's so clear in the scriptures. Go back to the book of Exodus 34. And, and some of this will be old hat to some of you, but some of you it will be new. And those who heard it before, if Paul can say it isn't harmful for you to hear it again, I can say the same thing. Exodus 34 verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now what are the specific exact words and terms of the old covenant the ten commandments is that what it says yes, sir. you think it means what it says <laughs> all right he wrote on that the ten commandments every time the scripture uses the phrase ten commandments every single time you know how many times that is anybody know over over ten it isn't fair. Three times. Three times. And all of them are in the Pentateuch. And every time the phrase Ten Commandments is used, it's always used to describe covenant. Nowhere does the Bible ever refer to or teach that the Ten Commandments are the quote on changing moral law of God. And, and if you get that in your head as a theological axiom, I'll guarantee you, you'll never understand the New Testament scriptures. And you sure won't understand the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, and the book of Hebrews. Never does it speak of that at all. Now, in verse 29, you will notice in Exodus 34, And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony, and this is one of the phrases which is used probably more than any other one. The testimony. Sometimes the Ten Commandments are just called the testimony. Or the tables of testimony. And why are they called that? Well, it seems to me they're called the tables of the testimony because the things which are written on them furnish the ground upon which God will condemn those who do not keep this covenant. In other words, if these are the covenant terms that will earn the blessing, they will also furnish the evidence against you if you don't keep it. So they're the tables of the covenant, they're also the tables of the testimony. 
Now, when somebody says, do you believe the Ten Commandments are the rule of life for a believer today? It all depends on how much time you have, how you should answer that. If you've got a lot of time, just say, well, which version? The version in Exodus or the version in Deuteronomy 5? And most people don't know there are two different versions. So, so that, that's the place to start. And, and you at least get them confused in the very beginning, you see. Well, if you pick one of the two and then you say, okay, what about the fourth? Well, forget about the fourth. And they, they don't want to talk about the fourth commandment because they don't want to bring that one over. They want to change this before they, they bring it over and so on. But the real answer to the question is, is the Ten Commandments a rule of life for a believer? Is really simple. The answer is absolutely no, because it's far too low a standard. It's not a high enough standard. And I can't understand for the life of me how anybody can accuse us of being antinomian when we believe there's a higher law. I, I can't understand that. But another answer is somebody says is the Ten Commandments will say, well, the well, Ten Commandments that occurs only three times. Let's take the words the Holy Ghost uses the most. Let's say tablets of stone. Or let's say tablets of the covenant. Do you believe the tablets of the covenant that God made with Israel are the terms of the life and the worship of the church? Are the terms of the covenant that established Israel as a nation, are they the same terms which are the rule of life for a Christian today? Well, you see, I don't know anybody who would agree to that. And yet that's what you're really saying when you say the Ten Commandments are the rule of life. You're saying the tablets of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai is the rule of life for the church today. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Lest you think I just picked one text out of the, the blue. Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess the nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over with thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord thy God has said unto thee. Speak not in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, for my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord drove them out before thee. <clears throat> Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess the, this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord thy God doth drive them out before thee. And that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto thy fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. He's not given you this because you are the redeemed people of God who have been regenerated and he's giving you this as a rule. No, no, you're a stiff-necked people. And he specifically called them that. Verse 7, Remember and forget not, 
how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until you come to this place you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry with you to destroy and to have destroyed you. When I had gone up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, even the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I abode in the mount forty days and forty nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered unto me the two tables of stone written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spoke with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of forty days and forty nights that the Lord gave me the two tables of stone even the tables of the covenant. You know, when the Holy Ghost says something and then says even, <laughs> to explain it, it seems to me he, he means to make an emphasis. Don't you think so? And have you noticed so far how we kept saying, and he kept saying over, even the tablets of stone, even the Ten Commandments, even the terms of the covenant. And so here he's talking to these people whom he has loved, chosen, redeemed, called, but all of this is in a national sense. And he's saying, you're a bunch of rebels. And he gave them this covenant in order to convince them of their sin and their need of a Savior. Now, the New Testament scriptures do the same thing. The New Testament scriptures in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 refer to the tablets in the box as the tablets of the covenant. The tablets of the covenant. So it does the same thing. Now, one more text in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 5. This covenant was given only to the nation of Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep them and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all here alive unto this day. This is the covenant that established Israel as a body politic, as a nation among nations, with special privileges and special status that no, ever, no other nation ever had. And that's what he's saying here. God did not make this covenant with our fathers. He made this with us this day as we stand before him, having been redeemed out of this land and now about to enter into a land and become a nation as a body politic with laws and all that goes with it a true Theocracy, a nation among nations. Now, we're not talking about Jewish people. We're not trying to talk about the Jewish people as a people. And we're not discussing whether or not Jewish people as a people will be converted in the future. I think Romans 11, as far as I'm concerned, settles that, that there will be such a thing. But we're talking about a nation that was established under a specific covenant with specific terms that has a beginning and an end in a national sense. This gave this people national status, body politic, 
privileges and status. Specifically, they were given these promises in Exodus 19, and one of the great promises that made to Abraham was to become a great nation, the nation that would be the holy nation before God. And here, this nation has the opportunity to become the fulfillment of that and to become the holy nation, and they didn't because they never kept the covenant. So that's what we've got to go back to Exodus 19. If you keep my covenant, then you'll become a holy nation. And First Peter says, you have become that holy nation. Now there's disagreement among people, uh, even people here. This is the only conference I know where they have an amillennial book table and a premillennial book table, and they don't throw the books at each other. <laughs> and the one group don't commit at midnight and burn the other group's material. <laughs> so there is disagreement. And there's disagreement concerning the legitimacy of the phrase, the church as spiritual Israel. And as you know, covenant theologians have no difficulty with that phrase at all, but dispensationalists do have difficulty with that phrase. If you would like to see both sides of it by people that you know, then get Dr. Johnson's article on Galatians chapter 6 where it speaks of the Israel of God and he has an article showing that that cannot refer to the church and then get Randy Seaver's exposition of the book of Galatians and he says it does mean the church. So if you get those two, you can get both sides of the question. Now, it's obviously not a matter of life or death to me, or I wouldn't invite both of them to speak at the same conference. Now, as I say, there can be and is disagreement over the phrase and whether or not you can say the church is spiritual Israel. However, I don't think we can have a disagreement that the church is the true holy nation. I think that 1 Peter chapter 2 forever settles that argument. I don't think there's a question that the church is the temple of God. And Israel never became the temple of God. The church is the sanctuary of God. It is the house of God. And every Christian is a living stone in that house. God dwelt among the people of Israel. He appeared to them in the mount... And then he came closer in the tabernacle and appeared and they could see his presence was there by the fiery pillar and the cloud. But he did not dwell in them. He dwelt among them. But he dwells in every living stone in this living temple today. We are the temple of God. If you say, well, there's going to be another one, I'm not going to fight with you. You'd have to prove to me the reason that you believe there will be another one. All I'm saying is there is the true temple that fulfills the promise in the old. If it's a greater one, another one, that's a different story altogether. We are the nation that was born in a day, on the day of Pentecost. We are the nation that is holy, that was promised in Exodus 19 verse 5 and 6, the temple of God, the sanctuary of God, and so on. Now, how did we become those things? And why did Israel never inherit those things? Because we have a surety that kept the covenant and earned every blessing and took every curse 
and they never kept the covenant. They never inherited the blessings promised at Mount Sinai because they never kept the covenant. We have in Jesus Christ, in and through our surety, and that's what the book of Hebrews, it seems to me, is all about. Deuteronomy chapter 27. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with Deuteronomy 27, 28, where it talks about the curses and the blessings. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, beginning to read at verse 8, The Lord shall command the blessings upon thee in the storehouses, and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenties and goods, and so on, and so on. Now, these are the curses. And then it lists some of these curses. And when you read every one of those curses, remind yourself that Jesus Christ was made a curse for people like every one of those. There are homosexuals mentioned here. There are all kinds of wickedness mentioned here. And Jesus Christ was made a curse for every believing homosexual. Is that right? For every believer, no matter what his wickedness was, Jesus Christ bore that curse. Look at chapter 28 and verse 9. Uh, I didn't read the verse, the right chapter, did I? I read 27, pardon me. Go back to 27, verse 8. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. This day. God did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. The nationhood, the body politic, Israel nationally begins at the day of Pentecost, when they, not the day of Pentecost, but the, when they stood under Mount Sinai and enter into this covenant, if then, if then. And so he says, uh, that the, and thou should, where did I stop here? Verse 10. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice, verse 10, Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes which I have commanded you. And then Moses charges these blessings and cursings. Because they were his special people, they were called upon for these special obligations. They never fulfilled the blessings they never, I mean, they never fulfilled terms. They never inherited the blessing. We do. Go back to Second Corinthians 3 where we jumped off. Second Corinthians 3, and we stopped, I think, at verse 7. If the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, and it was glorious, it was one of the greatest blessings that Israel had. The greatest blessing that God gave to Israel is that law covenant. And even though it was designed for death, and even though it was administration of death, it was still the greatest blessing because it was essential to fulfilling the promise made to Abraham concerning grace and faith. 
And nobody would, would believe this covenant with Abraham until he saw that he was a lost sinner. And this covenant was a handmaid to the other. Now what theologians misunderstand is, they misunderstand a gracious purpose on the part of God with a gracious covenant. And the Ten Commandments in no way, shape, or form are gracious. They are death from beginning to end. And there is no grace in that box. You touch it and you're dead. You can't even put your hand on it. And you open the box, everybody's dead. There's no grace there. But it was a gracious purpose because it was designed to lead men to a knowledge of sin. And if you want to understand the relationship of law and grace or law and gospel, look at that box and say there's not an ounce of grace in it, but then look at the lid and there's nothing but grace in the lid when the atoning blood is sprinkled on it. And the cherubim looked down and instead of seeing those emblems of sin in the box, and there were three emblems, and they were all emblems of man's rebellion to God, the second set of commandments, the first ones were broken, the rod that budded when they rebelled, and this can of the, the jar of manna, and here's an evidence of man's awful sin, but also God's amazing patience and his willingness to meet sinners when they come through blood. That's where the law and the gospel meet. But don't think of that covenant as gracious. It's not gracious, but it has a gracious purpose. It has a gracious end in view. The very law that killed was a gracious purpose of God. Now, the nature of the covenant was legal. The purpose of the covenant was gracious. Look at verse 8 in Second Corinthians chapter 3. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be better and more glorious? If that was glorious and if it had a gracious purpose, how much more shall a covenant that doesn't kill us but brings us to life? Both have a glory. Verse 9 and 10. If the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. This one is so much better, so much greater, it's as if this one didn't have any glory at all. For if that which is done away was glorious, what was done away? The letter, the covenant, the tablets. If that which was done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. What was done away? It wasn't the legal interpretation of the law, it was the law that was done away. Verse 18 is the text we really wanted to get to. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Beholding the Lord. And how do we behold the Lord today? Well, like Stephen did, when those stones hit him. And what does it say? It says he looked up into heaven, and he saw heaven opened. And he saw one sitting at the right hand, no, standing at the right hand of God the Father. When you see heaven opened, you'll always see the Son of God glorified, enthroned. And that's what you need to see. And you only see that as you, as you look through the cross and as you look through the empty tomb, as you look through the ascension. That's when we see the glorified, enthroned Lord with holes in his hands. And when we see him, 
representing us and we hear him use our name to the Father, that's when we have assurance to come into his presence. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty of what? Where the spirit is, what do you mean where the spirit is? Where the spirit is in the mind, the heart, and the conscience of a believer witnessing to him as his adoption in Jesus Christ, he has liberty to go into the presence of God past the veil. That's liberty. And that's a liberty you must not, you dare not let anybody steal from you. It's a liberty that Aaron didn't have. It's a liberty that no person living had until that day the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. For 364 days you can put on the veil no admittance. No admittance. And now you put on come and welcome because there is no veil. The holiest spot on earth was that most holy place. Is that right? The holiest piece of furniture was ever made was the Ark of the Covenant. Is that right? And when that veil was rent from top to bottom, that place wasn't holy anymore. You could rent it out for a pig pen. And that box, you can take it down to the gold market and get whatever you can get for it with gold because that's all it's worth. And Aaron, bless his heart. You know, we talk about obsolescence, retraining. If ever there was a man was out of a job. <laughs> and you remember in the Day of Atonement, he put on special clothes. He could never wear them again. Even down to his underwear. That fine linen underwear. Gone. He needed a new wardrobe. He needed to retrain. He needed everything. Because that's gone. It's all gone. Everything that is gone. Why, why, why want people to see, you wouldn't send anybody back to Aaron's ministry. Why would we send somebody back to Moses' ministry? If we send them to a superior priest, why don't we send them to a superior prophet? I cannot understand that. That confuses me. Go to Hebrews 9 and I have to get gone here I'm not going to finish book of Hebrews 9 chapter 9 verse 1 then verily the first coveted had also ordinances of divine service now don't confuse the covenant with the ordinances of divine service all of the sacrificial system all of the priest duties all of those things were necessary to administer the covenant but the covenant was the tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant. And that covenant was the thing that necessitated Aaron's ministry. There would be no Aaron, there would be no sacrificial system if there weren't a covenant in that box. And that covenant demanded perfect obedience before anybody could receive the blessing. Nobody could give it to person obedience, therefore nobody could earn the blessing. And secondly, that covenant demanded death of all who broke its terms unless you brought an acceptable sacrifice and nobody could bring an acceptable sacrifice including Aaron. And so there was no real atonement, there was no real heartfelt reconciliation because man couldn't earn the blessing and man couldn't bring the suitable sacrifice. And when our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice. He met all of the terms of the covenant in his holy life, and then he died under the curse of the covenant in his death. And when he did, the veil of the temple was rent because the terms of the covenant had been forever met and had been perfectly met. And those for whom they were met now inherit them. Don't confuse covenant with regulations. All of those things depicted the gospel, but they were not the covenant. They were the things that administered. In chapter 9, 2 through 5, he talks about the tabernacle, gives us a little description of it. And then in verse 6, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, that is the outer place, accompanying the services of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. And I, I don't know why they use the word heirs. If you look at the NIV, it says the people for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. See, the Day of Atonement did not do away with willful sin. You broke the law, you died under two or three witnesses. But there were sins of ignorance. And the sins of ignorance were what were atoned for. Only the priest went into the holy place. Only the high priest went into the most holy place. And he needed blood. Verse 8 is a very key verse. The Holy Ghost was signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Now, now burn that in your mind. Randy mentioned this the other day. Here's the Holy Spirit's interpretation of the purpose and meaning of the whole system of Judaism, the whole system of worship. What did it all mean? What was the Holy Ghost teaching by that? Two things. Number one, that whole system closed off God and shut man out. That whole thing had one word. God is holy, you're a sinner. And you can't give him the obedience that he deserves and demands, nor can you bring him an acceptable sacrifice. And the whole hope was of one who would come and would give the law the honor it deserved, who would bear its curse. But for that day, in that time, the Holy Ghost was saying there is no way into the most holy place until the terms of that covenant are met. And he's saying here, as long as that tabernacle stands, then the demands of that covenant stand. And until they're met, there is no entrance into the presence of God. And the rending of the veil is saying the covenant is met. The terms have been fulfilled. The curses have been born. And now it is no longer closed off. Now it says, come and welcome. There was no way into the presence of God as long as that tabernacle stood. There's no access as long as the veil is in place. There is no Abba Father experience until Jesus dies, removes the veil, ascends to heaven, and then sends the Holy Ghost to bear witness to us. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time that is then, 
in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Or as the NIV says, they couldn't clear the conscience. Why couldn't the Old Testament believer have the confidence to go in past the veil? Why couldn't he do it? Suppose you'd have taken the veil away and told him to go into the presence of God. He still couldn't have done it. Why? Because there was something inside of him that wouldn't let him. There was the realization that God was holy and he was a sinner. And he knew that that blood of bulls and goats did not cleanse inside. He couldn't get away from that guilty feeling. And the Day of Atonement was not to erase that guilt, but was to remind of the sin. And the whole system was a reminder of sin. In order to create a longing for a Redeemer who was going to come. Something inside of him. There was no atonement that could calm that nagging conscience. There was no sufficient blood that could be sprinkled on the conscience that could make him say, I can come boldly to a throne of grace. I can go in that veil because I'm robed in the righteousness of a Redeemer. He couldn't say that. But we can. Now he compares these two things. Verse 10, These things stood in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of the Reformation. That doesn't mean the 16th century. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and calves, but by his own blood he entered once, once for all, into the holy place, having obtained eternal, as opposed to one year, redemption for us. Now, if, if the blood of bulls and goats could cleanse a man's body outwardly so that he was acceptable within the nation and was not kicked out and put to death. So there's some things that the old covenant sacrifices could do. They could make you ceremonially clean. Regardless of your heart, they could make you acceptable in the community of the people of God. And he said if those sacrifices could do that, how much more... Can a sacrifice that gets to the heart of the problem, to the very conscience of man, and calms and settles that? That's the great difference. See, when he says in verse 10, which stood only, he's saying only meaning that and no more. That's all it could do. See, the blood of bulls and goats were not offered by the blood and bull and goats. It wasn't voluntary. And that's what we heard the other day when Fred preached, the necessity of the voluntariness of the death of Christ. His death is voluntary. Therefore, he ought to be able to do with it what he wants to. His death is vicarious. His death is victorious. Those three V's are the sum and the substance of our Lord's death on Calvary's cross. Now, that but no more. It's not to say there was no prophet in the Old Testament system. It had a prophet, but only outwardly. And you remember our Lord says you don't start with the outside. Because it isn't what's outside that defiles the man that goes in him. It's what's in him that comes out of him that defiles him. And you've got to start with the heart. You've got to start with the conscience. And there wasn't anything in Aaron's ministry that could deal with the heart. 
that could deal with the man's conscience. What they couldn't do, they couldn't touch the conscience. Verse 14, much more, much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience. Why? Well, because he offered himself as the sinless son of God. And what he did was he offered his perfect sinless humanity on the altar of his absolute deity and made atonement, real atonement, real propitiation. He is the offerer, he is the offering, and he is the altar. And that's the offering that purges the conscience. That's the offering that makes me know that God is satisfied. And you will never be satisfied with assurance until you're sure that God is satisfied. Do you really believe he's perfectly satisfied with you today? Do you really believe he's perfectly satisfied with you in Christ today? That you really have everything you'll ever need. That's where assurance comes from. Go to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8. Here's the problem. There are certain things that go together. Always go together. Romans 8. Verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. These four things go together. Law tells you what you got to do, what your duty is to do, condemns you as guilty when you don't do it, so you have guilt. Law, guilt, condemnation, and then rejection or fear. We hang our heads. We can't come. Who are we to dare approach a holy God? Law, guilt, condemnation, rejection. The great question is, how do you deal with guilt? And just go to the bookstore and they're just full of them. How to be guilt free. <laughs> and you know today, one of, one of the biggest enigmas today is that most of the guilt isn't guilt. Now let me tell you something. Even God can't forgive false guilt. Even God cannot and will not forgive false guilt. If the Holy Ghost convicts you and brings you to Christ, brings you to confession, he'll seal forgiveness to your heart. Whoever makes you guilty is the only one who can take the guilt off of your conscience. If your mama made you guilty and you really feel guilty because of mama, then mama is the only one who can take that guilt off. If the preacher is the one who made you feel guilty, then the preacher is the only one who can take the guilt off of you. And the price is your conscience. The price is your conscience. My friend, make sure that guilt is from the Holy Ghost. And what is from Him, don't trifle with. Do some real heart searching and confession and some repentance. But don't live under false guilt because even God can't forgive that because He didn't put it on. He's not responsible for it. You've traded masters. And that's dangerous. Now how does the world deal with guilt? Well, it destroys the law. The problem is the law 
problem with you is you've got too high standards. You're too hard on yourself. And so they lower the standards. And you make your own standards. The only trouble that doesn't work, they, they still go to the psychiatrist on the couch because down in their heart of hearts they know better. So how does God deal with guilt? Well, God doesn't deal with guilt by violating His law. If He would, He'd be an antinomian like the psychiatrist. How does God deal with guilt? He deals with guilt by dealing with condemnation. He takes the full condemnation of the law in the person of His Son. And He frees us from condemnation and guilt by meeting the full claims of the law and making it honorable. Is that right? And if we say we're not under law but under grace and we're still the victims of sin, we're no better off than we were under law. We might as well go back there. Grace has to deliver us. Or it isn't grace. Guilt's the problem. But you don't attack it that way. You attack it with condemnation. You attack it with the cross. Go with me to Ephesians. I have two more texts. The book of Ephesians. And the more I preach and the more I get to know people, the more I discover that a lot of people struggle with assurance. It's because they don't understand justification. (laughs) They don't understand the heart of the gospel. They don't understand imputation. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Be you therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. A sweet-smelling savor. You know, the, the, the Old Testament religion must have been pretty sickening in one sense. If you'd have been a priest, you'd have had to have a pretty good stomach. I mean, can you imagine what, what, what a bullock would smell like with its hide and its dung and its hoofs thrown on red-hot coals? Mm. And yet, that was a sweet-smelling savor to God. So it can't have anything to do with your nose because that would have been sickening. What was so sweet smelling? Why did God smell that and like it? Because he saw the obedience of his son. And the height of his obedience was when he offered himself unto God and God turned his back upon him and the father was never more pleased with his son than he was when his son cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because that was the height of his obedience to his father. You remember Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You remember, you remember when Jacob stole the blessing? <laughs> And Rachel performed one of those great miracles in the Bible. She cooked a goat and made it taste like a deer. How she did that, I don't know. And then you remember she took the hair and put it on Jacob's hands because he was fair-skinned. And Isaac, he's about half blind. Hmm? Tasted. And, and Jacob went in to his father's presence. He says, who are you? He said, I'm Esau. He said, you don't sound like Esau. He says, come close. 
And his mother also had taken a blanket and put it over the fire. <laughs> and so he smelled like the woods, you know. And so Jacob says, I mean, Isaac says, come near to me. And so he leaned over and he kissed him so he could smell him. And he smelled like the woods. And he said, you sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau. <laughs> and you know, he stole the blessing. He got away with it. And that's what you and I do. We come into the presence of God and we say, I'm your son. I'm robed in his righteousness. And God says, come near to me. And we draw near to him. And he, he smells Jesus. And if he smells Jesus, we're accepted. And we walk off with the blade. But we didn't fool him. He knew it. And he told us to come. He told us to come. And some of our friends say this is a slaughterhouse religion. It's a sweet-smelling savor to our God. You'll never be satisfied until you know that God is satisfied. And you only know God is satisfied as you stand under the cross. You stand anyplace else, you'll feel free. In the book of Colossians, it talks about the written code that was against us. It was against us because of our sin. But that written code is blotted out. But it's blotted out only because its terms are perfectly met forever. And today we rejoice in the righteousness of God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We usually don't think of God's justice in connection with our forgiveness. We think of mercy, grace, and love, but that's not what the text says. It says He's faithful and just. And justice is our hope. Our hope is that God is so just he will not punish sin twice. And our hope is in his faithfulness in the covenant which he made with his son. And when we come in Jesus' name and we plead the merits of his blood, God's faithful. To who? To you? He doesn't owe you anything. He's faithful to his son. He's faithful to his oath which he made to his son. And he's just. He honors the work of his son in our forgiveness. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate's a lawyer. Jesus is the only lawyer that can practice in heaven. He's the only one that ever passed the bar examination. <laughs> to be a lawyer, you've got to be a man without sin. He's the only man that was ever without sin. He's the only man who can plead for other men in the court of heaven. He's the only lawyer I know never lost a case. The only lawyer I know won't take your case unless you admit you're guilty. Now tell me, tell me how, tell me how a lawyer who only takes guilty cases and always gets them off scot-free. Tell me how I can earn the nickname Jesus Christ the Righteous. That seems unrighteous. And how can he establish righteousness and get sinners off scot-free? And that's the gospel. That's the go See, the two things God hates 
Don't you dare punish the guilty. Don't allow the, don't allow the guilty to go free. Don't punish the innocent. He said that's abomination. And he's done both. And he's told us to go out and preach this as the gospel of righteousness. And we can only do that as we preach the cross and the atonement. And our Savior pleads for those for whom he died. Is that right? And when we were there, and if we could see ourselves standing there guilty, and our lawyer gets up and he says, Your Honor, everything against my client is true. In fact, it's ten times worse. We say, The case is lost. I don't have a chance. And our lawyer says, But I have evidence to prove that you can't punish him even though he's guilty. And the judge says, He's guilty, and you know my law says the soul that's in it that shall die, and you're going you're gonna to show me where I can't punish him? What's your evidence? Where's your case? And our lawyer holds up his hands and says, There's Exhibit A. He points to the wounds in his feet and says, There's Exhibit B. And he points to the wound in his side and says, There's Exhibit C. And then he gets a scroll out of his bosom. In Hebrews 13, it's called the everlasting covenant. And he says, Father, do you remember when you made me the shepherd and you gave me some sheep? And when you sent me into the world, do you remember that you promised me that when that sheep came to you, you would receive him for my sake? And you know something? The Father's faithful. And he remembers that covenant. And he's just, he honors that work of atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, case dismissed. Case dismissed. Let's pray. Our Father, we're glad for a gospel to preach. A gospel that meets men right where they are. In their sin with nothing but their sin. And invites them to come and buy without money. And to eat bread that satisfies and drink water that quenches the thirst. We're glad for such a gospel. We're glad for each other and for the bond of love that makes us one in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do thank you for this time together. It's been a mountaintop experience. We've learned from each other. We've been blessed by each other. We've been encouraged by each other. Now we go back to our homes. And we pray that your blessed spirit would cause us to remember some of the things we've heard about our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would go off of this mountaintop experience and back to the life that we live, the real world, the blood and guts of daily living with all of its difficulties, with the diapers, with the problems, with the work, that we would be different. Those things don't change, but you can change us. And give us a whole new perspective. And to look at people and things through the eyes of our Lord. And respond as he would respond. Oh God give us this grace. And if it please you bring us together again next year. To sit around the same table of grace. For Christ's sake. Amen.